is proclaimed in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, from verse 18, and continuing in chapter 16, verse 4. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, then they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen those miracles, and yet they have hated me, both me and my father. For this is to fulfill what was written in their law, they hated me with no reason. When the counsellor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify that you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I do not, did not tell you this at first because I was with you. This is the Gospel of Christ. Good, well, thank you, Ian, very much indeed. Good morning, everybody. And uh, as you heard in the prayers this morning, we are having our vision day and our AGM straight after the service. Um, and so the sermon will just be a little bit shorter this morning. At the end of the service, we'll break for tea and coffee, come back and get straight down to business. And then after vision day, we have the student lunch uh, back in our home at Tukai. Well, do please keep the passage there open in front of you and uh, we'll pray and ask for the Lord's help. 
Well, Heavenly Father, it is our great joy to worship you together and to bring you the adoration of our hearts and the consecration of our lives. We thank you that you are our Father, that you know us through and through, and that your word is able first to find us, then to speak to us, then to transform us, And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, this passage will come alive to our hearts and our minds this morning. And so we say, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Sunday morning, we were looking at the uh, parable of the vine and the branches And uh, we saw, didn't we, that what Jesus is saying there is that all Christians are missionaries. Uh, If you are a Christian, uh, you are a missionary. Uh, That is your purpose. That's how Jesus sees us. And we also learned, didn't we, that our ability to be effective missionaries depends upon us remaining in Jesus and kind of drawing all the resources that we need from him. In other words, if we don't remain super close to Jesus every single day, we simply won't get started. Now, why is that the case? Why is that true? Well, our passage this morning explains why. Because in verse 18, Jesus says, the world hates the disciples. In other words, the world hates Christians. We don't like that. Of course we don't. We wish Jesus hadn't actually said it. But in our hearts, we know it's true. So we have to think carefully about it. At the same time, there is something very wonderful in the passage that encourages us. So so that when the opposition comes, which it definitely is going to, what Jesus says here will strengthen us to persevere, the theme of our service this morning. Now, in order to help us see what Jesus is saying to us, let me start with a little story. It's a story about two brothers who were in the mafia. One of them died, and it just so happened that when this vicious criminal died, the local vicar was trying to raise money for a new building. Well, the vicar went to see the surviving brother about the funeral, and uh, he was astonished when the brother said to him, "Uh, if you will do one small thing for me, I'll give you the money for the new building. Well, the vicar was naturally intrigued, but uh, a little cautious, and so he said, okay, well, what is the one thing? And he said, well, when you take my brother's funeral, I want you to promise that you will describe him as a saint. And of course, the vicar was rather unsure about that because he knew, just as everybody else in the village knew, that the dead man had been involved in in drugs and prostitution and gambling and so on. At the same time, he really needed the money for the building. So he agreed. Money was paid into the church account, But at the funeral, 
the brother who made the request was furious. Because when the vicar gave um, uh, a full account of the man's life, he described all of his crimes, the dead man's crimes, in graphic detail. But the vicar finished by saying this, I want you all to remember one thing. In comparison with his brother, the dead man was a saint. Now, I start with that because, you see, we all like to compare ourselves with other people. Uh, we, we think, don't we, of people being kind of divided by flaws in a building. Uh, so, on the very top floor, there are the extremely good people. Then, uh, one floor below that, uh, there are the respectable people. And then, a floor below them are people who try hard and below them are bad people, and then down there in the basement are the people that we all agree really ought to be in prison. And unless you and I consider ourselves to be in the basement, which most of us, of course, don't, we're fairly confident, aren't we, that we can look down on someone who, in our opinion, is worse than us. And that makes us feel just a little bit better about ourselves. But of course, when we come to the Bible, we find that God isn't remotely interested in what floor we think we might be on. Because God divides the human race not by floors, but by a door. And in God's economy, there is only actually one door that really matters. So either... We love God, however imperfectly, and we're going God's way under God's rule, or we're not. And when God looks at us, the question is not actually about our moral track record. It's about our spiritual direction. Now someone might say, well that sounds a bit extreme, it sounds a little bit too black and white. After all, Surely there are plenty of different kinds of people in the world, and of course there are. But they might also say, well look, you know, even supposing this is true, how can we tell which direction we're going in? I mean, we can't see God. So how can we tell whether we're heading in the right direction or not? Well, here's one way you can tell. Just supposing a man were to walk this earth who in everything he said and did perfectly reflected the goodness and character and justice and righteousness of God. Just suppose he was to come to this particular part of Cape Town, the southern suburbs. Is it not fair to say that the way we respond to that man is an indicator of the way that we respond to God. That if we follow him and love him, that's an indicator that fundamentally, at heart, we're going God's way. But if we hate him and shrink away from him and keep our distance, that also would be an indicator, wouldn't it, of our attitude to God. Well, of course, that is exactly what happened 2,000 years ago 
when Jesus of Nazareth walked this earth, uh, he said, and uh, everything he said, everything he did, reflected the character of God perfectly. And the way that people responded to him then was an indicator of the way that they were responding to God. Because everywhere Jesus went, he caused division, didn't he? So some people followed him and loved him and adored him, and other people hated him and rejected him. You couldn't be neutral about Jesus. But here's the interesting thing. On top of that, what we find in our passage this morning is that the way people responded to the followers of Jesus was also an indicator of where they were with God. Because if they rejected the disciples, it was an indicator they were rejecting Jesus. And that in turn was an indicator that they were rejecting God. But if they listened to the followers of Jesus, if they believed their message and followed them, well, it indicated the opposite. Now, in some ways, um, our passage this morning is a little bit depressing. But in these chapters, towards the end of John's Gospel, we're all in the, it's, it's always in the shadow of the cross. There's this strong sense of very big trouble just around the corner. Uh, Jesus keeps saying that he's going away. And uh, in our passage, in verse 18, he says... If the world hates you, <coughs> hates you, excuse me. And the word if there means that it's definitely going to happen. <coughs> Jesus is saying, when the world hates you, please will you then remember what I'm about to tell you. Now, it is important to understand that when Jesus talks about the world... He's not talking about planet Earth. In John's Gospel and in John's letters, the world means human society organized without reference to God. Uh, it means men and women getting together and organizing themselves uh, socially, morally, and culturally in such a way that Almighty God is left on the touchline, left out of the picture completely. That's what Jesus means when he talks about the world. Now, yes, I realize this is a bit discouraging. I mean, here we are at the start of a new year. In a few moments, we're going to be discussing our vision for the future of St. Barnabas, and it's an exciting vision. We don't really want to be thinking about whether the world hates us or not. But last Sunday morning, we were reminded, weren't we, by open doors, that 360 million Christians are experiencing very high levels of persecution in the world right now. 360 million people. And uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, the persecution is becoming increasingly violent. So we're not here talking about something abstract or theoretical or remote, 
Because what Jesus says in our passage is happening this morning. And you and I need to think very carefully about it. There are three things I want us to see in the passage. And uh, the encouragement comes right at the end, so please stay with me. Here's the first thing I want us to see. Response to Christians is response to Jesus. Response to Christians is response to Jesus. Let's look at verses 18 to 20 again. Jesus says to his disciples, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Now, can you see in those verses that Jesus is talking about just two categories of people? So there is the world, meaning human society going my way, ignoring God. And then, on the other hand, there are those people who've been taken out of the world and who are now going God's way. These are the followers of Jesus. They've been taken out of the world, so they, they don't belong in that system anymore. Now, we know, don't we, in our own experience, that it's very uncomfortable indeed to live in a community of any kind and to feel that you just don't belong. I guess all of us have experienced that at some point in our lives in one way or another. It might have been at school. Uh, perhaps it was a company you worked for. And deep down inside, you knew that you just didn't share their values, uh, that uh, you were not going the way that they were going, and it felt really uncomfortable. Now, what Jesus is saying here is that's precisely what it's like to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who lives in the world, but does not belong to the world, and who doesn't share its values. And that is a very uncomfortable thing. But then we need to ask a more fundamental question, which is, why did people treat Jesus this way? And uh, verses 21 to 25 bring us to our second heading, which is that response to Jesus is response to God. Response to Jesus is response to God. Jesus has said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. So why did they hate Christians? Verse 21, they will treat you this way because of my name. That is because you bear the name of Christ. You are, if you like, a Christian, a Christian. Now why is the world like that? And the answer in verse 21 is, they do not know the one who sent me. 
Now that, by the way, doesn't mean they've never heard of God. It means they've rejected him. It means they don't want to know him. So the way that they treated Jesus reveals their fundamental attitude to God. And then Jesus spells it out in verse 22. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, obviously, they weren't innocent and sinless before Jesus did speak to them, because nobody is. But what Jesus is saying is now they're guilty in a fresh way because Jesus has come and spoken to them. So they've got no excuse for their sin because in their midst has been someone who has spoken the actual words of God to them. And friends, when that happens and we reject both the message and the messenger, it brings our sin right out into the open. So verse 23, look at what Jesus says there. He who hates me hates my father as well because it's not possible to love God without loving Jesus. So verse 24, if I had not done amongst them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they've seen these miracles and yet they've hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. And here Jesus quotes from the Psalms. They hated me without reason. So when they saw and heard Jesus as he lived among them, the way that they responded to him was indicating their response to God. Now, I want us to think about this together for just a moment. Because, you see, if we dislike somebody, and if we find we simply can't get on with them, it is frighteningly easy, isn't it, for us to look for something in them to justify our dislike. Do you find that? That's how it is for me. But you see, here's the thing. Put me face to face with Jesus Christ, in whom I cannot possibly find any fault or cause or reason to hate him, if I still find welling up in my heart a hatred of him and a stubborn refusal to go his way. Well, that, that's a very worrying sign of what's really going on in my heart. And that's what was happening with the people who hated Jesus. Socrates was a famous Greek philosopher who lived 400 years before Christ. And as Socrates said, if ever a perfect man walked this earth, we would kill him. Well, 400 years later, a perfect man did walk the earth, and that's precisely what happened. So the ministry of Jesus was very, very revealing. And the fascinating thing was that the way that people responded to Jesus, this is fascinating, wasn't actually according to that kind of moral flaws model that I mentioned at the beginning. Do you remember that? Uh, really good people on the top floor, really bad people in the basement. You think about that model, we would have expected all of the really good people 
all of the really respectable people would listen to Jesus and would follow him. And that everybody in the moral basement would have rejected him. That's what we would have expected. But when you read the Gospels, you find exactly the opposite. In the Gospels, there are very few disciples from the top two or three floors. Very few people who actually seem to have it together morally. But there were loads of people from the basement. Isn't that right? Most of the people who followed the Lord Jesus were the tax collectors, the prostitutes, people whose relationships were in a mess, people with skeletons in the cupboard, people with things in their lives about which they were extremely ashamed, plenty of real no-hopers. They all followed Jesus in large numbers because in him, of course, they found grace and forgiveness and a fresh start. Now someone might say, and this would be, I think, a thoughtful response, well, okay, Simon, I can understand how all of that worked when Jesus was here on earth doing his ministry among us in Galilee and in Judea. But what about today? What about now? Now that is the question that Jesus anticipates in verses 26 and 27. And this brings the situation right up to date. It's our third heading this morning. Because in these verses, Jesus gives us vital resources for the fight. Vital resources for the fight. Now just fix your eyes, please, on verses 26 and 27. Because in those verses, there are two testimonies. There are two witnesses from whom we hear and learn about Jesus Christ. And together, these two witnesses make Jesus real to us today. Because today, of course, the problem is we can't see Jesus with our physical eyes. We can't hear his voice with our ears. We can't touch him physically with our hands. But God has set things up in such a way that Jesus is made real to men and women today through the testimony of these two witnesses. Who are they? Well, first, in verse 26, Jesus says the counselor, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, will testify about him. That, by the way, is what the Holy Spirit does. He testifies to the person and work of Jesus. And he gives us a sense that these things are true. And then alongside the testimony of the Spirit, verse 27, please look at it, there is the testimony of the apostles. Because in verse 27... Jesus is talking to the 11 apostles. Uh, Judas has gone. He says, you also must testify about me. I'm going, going away. You must testify. And of course, the apostles did. They taught. They preached. Some of them wrote down what they'd seen and heard. 
And of course we have the written testimony of the apostles in what we today call the New Testament. That is their testimony. Now what I want to say to us this morning is that these two testimonies about Jesus, the written word of the apostles and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, they go together. You cannot have one without the other. You can't get hold, <coughs> excuse me, you can't get hold of the testimony of the apostles without the Holy Spirit. And you can't have the ministry of the Spirit without the Word of God. Many people think you can. <coughs> but can I say that if you try and separate those two things, <coughs> you will go badly wrong. But bring them together. Bring them together in the way that Jesus does here. And you have an extremely powerful testimony to Jesus Christ. So think about this. When someone today opens the Bible, maybe quietly on their own, and they have this sense within themselves that these things are true and that we ought to respond and follow Jesus, my friends, that is the testimony of the apostles and the testimony of the Spirit working together within us. That, I think, is the great encouragement in this text. Yes, it's true that often at the same time, rebellion is still there in our hearts to some degree. Why is that? Because all of us actually still want to go our own way, and Jesus is a threat to that. But every single Christian knows what it's like to be reading their Bible and to be given a sense that the message is true and that he or she ought to be following Jesus. Now that actually, when you have that, that is the fulfillment of what Jesus is promising in verses 26 and 27. It's the, the testimony of the apostles and the testimony of the Holy Spirit working together within us. And when that happens to you, you need to respond. When uh, the Titanic set out on its famous last voyage across the Atlantic, um, the passengers were classified in five categories. Uh, so category number one was royalty and government ministers. Uh, category number two was film stars and other celebrities. Uh, category number three was first-class passengers. Um, category number four was millionaires. And then last of all, there was what they call steerage. And steerage basically meant that you're in the lowest cabin below deck, right in the very bottom of the ship. I suppose that was the equivalent, wasn't it, in social terms of the moral flaws we were talking about a moment ago. But friends, when the Titanic sank... The list of passengers was published under only two headings. Known to be saved, known to be lost. Because, of course, when the ship went down, that was actually the only distinction that mattered. 
So as we bear that in mind, let's be quiet for a moment and I will pray. Well, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have given us the testimony of the spirit of truth working in our hearts, teaching us about you. And we thank you that you've given us the written testimony about you in the Bible. And we ask that you would give us a heart that will respond in love and loyalty and obedience and that you will put into our hearts a growing love for you and a love for your Father as we continue our journey through this world. And we ask in your precious name. Amen.